0: They're redrawing the maps and rewriting the history in the Middle East this week. If you're finding it difficult to keep ahead of the pro-democracy developments unfolding from southern Sudan to Egypt, straight around to Tunisia and possibly even Morocco, consider the position of political leaders who have been caught in an extraordinary wave of change. I'm John Hockenberry with Celeste Headley, and this is Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. Welcome to the premiere edition of a brand new daily podcast from The Takeaway, our partners, The New York Times and the BBC. Over the next few minutes, we're going to take you there where governments are being challenged and people are on the streets, and we will leave you with a better understanding of these events. Here's some unmistakable voices along the way, people watching their world literally change before their eyes. We begin with a basic recounting of today's events, and with that we're joined by, from our partner the New York Times, Nick Kristoff, who experienced everything with us uh, on our radio program this morning. Nick, recount for us the events as you saw them unfold today.
1: Well, I mean, it's it, what an incredible day. The um, Tahrir Square has been, you know, full of people constantly. Uh, you know, right now it is uh, five hours after curfew, more than five hours after curfew, and it is still just jam-packed with uh, people, um, you know, full of uh, a real sense of hope that, that there is change coming, uh, profound change coming to Egypt and indeed ripple throughout the Arab world.
0: What was the tone between uh, people in the square and uh, uh, members of the army, which seem to be enforcing some sort of security in Cairo? Um,
1: You know, it's it's funny. The mood right in the square is pretty relaxed and pretty celebratory. There were a lot of uh, families here today, a lot of women, a lot of children, um, some babies. And... I think that people are losing their fear to some degree. I've been asking people, uh, you know, interviewing lots of people each day, and it strikes me that each day more people are willing to give me their full names, um, knowing that, you know, I will that I may indeed publish them and that they might get in trouble.
0: Wow, that that that's um, an... this
1: morning. There were a lot of people who were worried that there were going to be infiltrators in the square causing violence, and you know, when that didn't happen, uh, more and more people joined in
0: you know your sense that people are calming down uh, at least among the citizens of uh, Cairo and Egypt uh, you know belies the other story that came out today and that is uh, the state department ordering non-essential US government personnel and their families to leave Egypt uh, are they in conflict in some way is that a contradiction is the US misreading the situation
1: no i mean i think if i were a uh, state diplomat then i might well do the same i mean there's tremendous uncertainty here we don't know what is going to happen so um that may be the prudent thing to do i would never want to say that i can predict what's going to happen here but all I, all i know is that right now on tahrir square as i speak i'm surrounded by a lot of people who are not very worried and are feeling pretty jubilant
0: is the Army awaiting orders, in your view? Are they tolerating the demonstrators, or are they just, uh, you know, like the demonstrators, waiting for what happens next?
1: Um, I think that the you know, the ordinary soldiers on the tank we're seeing, they are pretty friendly to the protesters, and I think they're awaiting orders. I think that the uh, protesters are reading too much into that, and, you know, when the soldiers get orders, they tend to obey them.
0: Uh, looking ahead, Nick Kristof, if there is a response from the government or an announcement that President Mubarak is leaving or an announcement of a crackdown by the military, where will that come from and where are people watching to get that information?
1: Well, the state television is still in its own world uh, oblivious to the reality of Tahrir. If you watch state television, then... You would have no idea that there are these kinds of protests unfolding at Tahrir. You would have a sense that there is some um, insecurity, uh, some problems in recent days, uh, but you wouldn't have a sense that there are anti-Mubarak uh, protests. And so uh, the you know the, the state media has been announcing these kind of official pronouncements, but they still have not you know bowed to reality, uh, presumably at this point. Mubarak is really losing control, and that puts the military in the driver's seat.
0: So, in a sense, it's like the old Cold War days. Uh, state television will suddenly start playing patriotic songs or something. Programming will break, and we'll know that something has changed.
1: Yes, I would say that uh, state television will, um, you know, make some announcement about how uh, Mubarak, for health reasons, has decided to um, uh, resign and seek, uh, you know, medical treatment in. Saudi Arabia, or something like that. Um, I mean, I, I hope that that is what it says and not some kind of a, a harsh pronouncement about everybody having to stay home, that um, there are security threats and the army has to declare established orders I mean, I hope that's not what are uh,
0: From our part of the New York Times, Nick. I
1: should say, just walking over to uh this, this evening, there was some pretty volatile, uh, there was some sort of volatile areas where... There, there weren't exactly clashes between citizens and troops, but there were some protests very near soldiers, and I think both sides were a little uh, a little jumpy.
2: All
0: right. We don't want to uh, push you out of the comfort zone of at least uh, uh, you know, reporting what's going on versus speculating, but where are you going to be watching over the next 24 hours uh, developments? You've already described some tension there on the fringe of Tahir Square.
1: I'm really trying to get a sense of what the people out here on the square want, what they think, uh, what they think about the Muslim brotherhood, uh, what they what kind of an Egypt they would like what what kind of relations they would like with the United States, with uh, Israel um, and so I've just been really interviewing people you know almost nonstop about that. The official announcement. Um, when they, when they come, well, we can all hear them, but I think maybe my own reporting is going to focus on, on people here in the square.
0: Nick Kristoff of the New York times. Thanks so much. My pleasure. With the ambience of Tahrir Square behind him there, that was Nick Kristoff of our partner, The New York Times. And we're going to take you right back into that mass demonstration in central Cairo. Celeste Headley, co-host of The Takeaway, spoke with famous Egyptian actor Amir Waked. You may have seen him in the film Syriana. He's one of the people on the streets of Cairo today and is our face in the crowd.
3: I'm hoping you can kind of contrast for us, for those people who have never been to Egypt, who then, therefore don't understand what it has been like under autocratic rule, the fact that you don't have people gathering in any numbers at all without attracting the attention of police. What a change today is, and how really staggering this is to see one, perhaps two million people gathered in Tahrir Square.
4: Yes, it's extremely glorious. We've never seen this in anything in our modern history. Not even in the 1919 when we made the revolution against the occupation of the British. It's fantastic. And if you watch the Egyptian television, it's a big joke. There's two million people on Tahrir Square, and they're like a, saying it's a few thousand. They're scaring the people to stay at home. They are They've blocked the internet onto the Egyptians. They've blocked the telephones. I think our ex-president, Mr. Hosni Mubarak, uh, has really dealt with the situation very, very extremely unwisely, and he has basically become our ex-president effective last Friday.
3: Well, you know, I mean, clearly there, you have. There's a lot of passion in your voice for what's the change that you see happening in your country.
4: I've seen, I've seen, I've seen people getting shot at. I've seen people getting driven. I've seen people getting killed by unarmed people. Getting killed by armed forces that protect this corrupt regime. It's corrupt. I'm not a politician. I'm an artist. I'm a humanist. It's, it's, it's. Un- acceptable by any standards of humanity.
3: Well, Omra, explain to me what I, as an American, should be be feeling, um, I mean, other than really tapping in on your passion for democracy in your country. We've heard from Egyptians saying the best thing that America can do right now is stay completely out of it. Uh, We heard complaints this morning from Egyptians saying, why isn't the Obama administration stepping in and demanding that Mubarak resign? We've heard people stepping in and saying, look, if Mubarak goes down, that means that a war with Israel is coming. I, as an American, I'm not sure who to believe.
4: No one wants to break the peace treaty with Israel. This is extremely, extremely far-fetched. No one wants to go to war, especially after a revolution. There will be definitely a free political system that will generate alternative leadership on every, in every stage of, of the future, and that's all we want.
3: One last question for you, Amra. Uh, we, sure. we we spoke with uh, Prince Hassan uh, of of Jordan today, and he was yes. talking about the winds of change blowing through the Middle East. We spoke to a, an an expatriate from Libya who says he hopes the spirit of Egypt uh, transfers to his countrymen. Uh, what do you oh, see... It will
4: definitely do. It uh, will definitely transfer really? everywhere in the Middle East. Of course, Egypt is the key to the region. Egypt has been collapsing with the region, rising with the region... Everything that happens in Egypt happens to the rest of the Arab world, and if we can uh, achieve democracy, then we will uh, we will succeed. I think in maybe creating a new democrat- democratic world in the Middle East, and I don't think this is any, there is anything wrong in wanting this or shouting for it.
3: Well Amr wakid say, you know i i realize you're going to be involved however long the protests take i wonder if you have one last message for your for all your countrymen in egypt who are protesting not just in cairo but throughout the country what would you say to them
4: i would say to them do like everybody in the world stand in front of our embassy every single day until this regime is over until the egyptian people have the right to say and choose what they what they want i mean come on They are not giving the Egyptians the freedom they deserve, and the Egyptians do not want this system anymore. That's why, from Friday, I call Hosni Mubarak the ex-Egyptian
3: president. Well, I don't think, if there are really three million people in uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo, I don't think any of the efforts to to scare people are working all that well. Um, Amra Wakid, protester now, actor, humanitarian, humanist, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. There was our face in the crowd, Amr Waked, uh, actor, humanitarian and protester there in Cairo, speaking to takeaway co-host Celeste Headley. Every day we ask the question, what are we seeing? And there are so many questions looking at the, the streets of Cairo and also uh, seeing what's happening in other Arab capitals. Uh, Shasheng Joshi joins us from the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, good afternoon to you. And uh, Michael Wahid Hanna joins us, a fellow at the Century Foundation. He's also been on uh, our program, The Takeaway, earlier this week, helping us to explain these events. Michael, good afternoon to you.
5: Uh, good to be with you again.
0: Let's begin. Uh, Shashank, what are we seeing when we look at the situation in Jordan? The government dissolved there by the king as a reaction
2: to demonstrators in the streets, a kind of Contagion, perhaps? Uh, yes, to some extent. Uh, what we're seeing in Jordan is different in the sense that it's uh, a very desperate rearguard action undertaken by King Abdullah, possibly at the uh, under American pressure. Uh, but Jordan's very different insofar as the protesters are not calling for regime change. Their, their concerns, uh, for many of them, are social conditions, economic conditions. Uh, so we're not seeing a situation as severe as it is in Egypt. And uh, what about other Arab capitals? I mean, we've seen uh, the
0: uh, Qataris, of course, uh, with their Al Jazeera, uh, seeming very much on the sidelines here and uh, looking with some sort of satisfaction at this pro-democracy movement. But I'm wondering if that's the case in all the other emirates.
2: No, it's not the case in all the other emirates. We're seeing we're seeing a lot of protests in many neighboring states. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, strong protests in Algeria. We've seen the opposition call the day a day of strike in Yemen, and we've seen concerns about places as far afield as Morocco and, and elsewhere. But the thing to remember is, uh, first of all, these states are not like Tunisia in the sense that they, they, uh, they lack the same uh, robust middle class. They lack the same conditions. Uh, many of them are, are much more central to American efforts. So so I, I wouldn't expect a contagion effect in the sense of toppling regimes. I, I think that would be uh, uh, putting it much too strongly. But sir, Certainly the feeling of uh, the power of those
0: pictures from Cairo is being felt in all of those places. We're speaking with Shashank Joshi, who's an analyst from the Royal United Services Institute, speaking to us from London. Hold on there, Shashank, Michael Waheed, we'll Hannah, uh, help me to understand what I'm seeing in Cairo, the checkpoints that the army has set up throughout Cairo and the apparent jubilation that's accompanying the demonstration that we saw today. Yet this fear over the last 30 years of the police In Cairo. How can the police be so feared in Cairo under the Mubarak regime and the army apparently so beloved?
5: They're very different institutions and they have different roles. Uh, The army is a silent guarantor of the regime's stability, but it's not the face of the regime that's seen by people on a day to day basis. The police forces and security forces attached to the Ministry of Interior, on the other hand, uh, these are the tools of repression for the state. When people are arrested, when they're tortured, when they're uh, indefinitely detained without charge, it is these people that that are carrying out those acts. That's not been the case with the army. They just have a very different profile with the Egyptian people.
0: So we have two very separate institutions here, Michael Waheed Han, a fellow at the Century Foundation. Do they have a different stake in the outcome here? In other words, could they be rivals in some sense in conflict as things proceed over the next few days?
5: Absolutely. The Ministry of Interior is loathed. It is universally loathed by these demonstrators. Uh, they are a symptom uh, of the much broader ills of the Mubarak regime. The military, on the other hand, has a future. Uh, it is seen as having achieved military gains against Israel in the 1973 war, uh, and it's a source of some pride. And again, they're not tainted by the regime in the same way. They are associated with the regime, uh, but they're not associated uh, with the repressive actions of the regime in the same manner as you see with the police. And so. They do have very different futures, uh, and you see that, I think, in some of the institutional calculations uh, that the military is probably making right now.
0: Josh Hank Joshi in London. Describe to me who is better suited, what institution is better suited to sort of take control if, as we've seen, the economy shuts down long enough for there to be real uh, uh, hardship in the streets and, uh, in a sense, a kind of martial law will need to be established to deliver water, to deliver services, to deliver bread.
2: Uh, well, everything we've just heard is entirely correct. It, um, the police's reputation was was absolutely awful before this crisis, before this uh, uprising. It is even worse after it. We've seen uh, police uh, infiltrate the crowd and uh, 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 worsen rioting. We've seen police uh, uh, shoot and injure protesters. On the other hand, we've seen the army make this remarkable statement that it would not use force against the people. They are clearly very concerned about preserving a a fine reputation they've accumulated over the years Uh, and so in the event of a um, a civil breakdown, in the event that you need uh, administration by someone other than the government, the army is the only viable candidate. The police uh, will be able to play no significant role in maintaining uh, public order if there's a general general breakdown.
0: All right, to both of you, before we go, your takeaway from the images today in Cairo, Michael Wahid Hanna, what are you looking for tomorrow and over the next 36 hours?
5: Well, I mean, the big thing is what happens to Hosni Mubarak. I mean, he obviously has to go. He has no legitimacy with the people. Uh, how that is orchestrated, I mean, that's what everybody's waiting for.
0: Michael Wahid Hanna, fellow at the Century Foundation. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Shashik Joshi,
2: uh, your takeaway and what you're going to be looking forward to over the next 36 hours here. Uh, I think as historic as these protests are, as remarkable as the scenes are, we should be aware that uh, the protesters themselves, uh, a million strong they might be, uh, they cannot translate these protests, this incredible revolutionary energy, into a decisive blow against the regime by itself. Mubarak has left them with an unappetizing choice. Uh, Either they they stay as they are and their energy may dissipate over time. Uh, After all, they have have homes to defend, jobs to go back to, uh, or they escalate. An escalation would present great dangers to their reputation mm. in the eyes of the international community. So I would not expect any precipitous change in the next 24 hours or so.
0: Shashank Joshi, an analyst from the Royal United Services Institute, speaking to us from London. We also spoke with Michael Wahid Hanna, a fellow at the Century Foundation. Both individuals telling us what to look forward to and helping us to explain what it is we're seeing in the Middle East. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. That was analyst Shashank Joshi of the Royal United Services Institute in London and Michael Waheed Hanna, a fellow at the Century Foundation, both helping us to understand what we are seeing in Cairo and the Arab world. And now we leave you with a takeaway on our radio program this morning. The man with probably the deepest experience in polling the Arab world on everything from U.S. policy to the role of women in society joined us. He's Shibli Talhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland. He did not claim to have predicted the events of today, but the sentiments expressed by the thousands and now millions Our views—he's tracked for years in his polling of the Arab world.
6: I mean, you know, for me as a political scientist, I always said, and I, 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 you know, repeated that over and over. The puzzle to me has never been: uh, are there reasons for people to revolt? The puzzle for me over the past decade really has been: why haven't people revolted already? So the biggest puzzle wasn't about: uh, do we? We knew there were a lot of reasons for people to revolt. We knew the passion. We knew that people that the policies rubbed against who they are. We knew the humiliation. We knew uh, the sense of, you know, that the 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 kind of embarrassment sometimes that these governments are speaking for for them, the the, the image that, that was portrayed, how Egyptians felt during the Gaza war, particularly, and during the uh, the war in uh, in Lebanon in, in 2006, where everything went against them, they felt so helpless to control events where e- Egypt was particularly a leader. So we knew all of that. So that is not a surprise. And by the way, it's not just generational. People think. It's just generational. I mean, obviously the lead is being uh, in Egypt was through young people, perhaps because of the use of technology and and, and maybe they have uh, you know more at stake. But frankly, we when we break it down by age, uh, age is not so much a factor in the attitudes pervasive across society. Uh, age might matter a little bit in the use of the. The new media, no question, and we, we see the younger, more younger people using it, but not so much in attitude. So, so the puzzle has always been, you know, how are these governments so effective at uh, putting down the, the public, which we knew was very angry?
3: Well, you know, many of the people that have been watching in Cairo and other places have have spoken repeatedly about the fact that the protests are all about internal matters within these countries, that in the end, the people are protesting about their own social conditions and economic conditions more than they are about any political or or, uh, religious stance. Is that something that you saw reflected maybe leading up to this?
6: You know, I think that's—I—I I have to say—that's a simplistic way to look at it, um, because it's not just particular issues. I mean, it's true that you know the lack of jobs, the lack of you know uh, future, the 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 you know food prices—all of that matters and matters maybe most in daily life. But it's just the collective notion of who they are, and that is wrapped into far more. It's just their helplessness vis-à-vis the power, their humiliation, their indignity, and their inability to pursue certain steps to even affect their own lives. And that goes on foreign policy issues as well. And I think we have to understand here something that maybe we don't understand, which we think is they're angry with America only because America supports a repressive regime. That is absolutely not true. It's true that they're angry with America because of that. But I think they're angry with the U.S. on foreign policy issues, like the Iraq war, Mm -hmm. the the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And they think that the U.S. is making their governments do what the public doesn't want to do, and in some ways aiding in that repression by forcing them to do those kind of things that would otherwise force people to revolt. And so in some sense, it's a package. It's not just an individual issue. It's much deeper than that.
0: But does that mean in the Emirates? Yesterday, Stephen Cook said to us, in Qatar, there'll never be a revolt because they're all rich. Uh, in in the well-off countries, is is there no way for this to move?
6: I think, in, you know, frankly, on, on economic issues, probably he's right. But uh, as I said, it's wrapped up in a much bigger story. Uh, in these countries, of course, it's a bigger question because the foreigners outnumber the locals. And mm-hmm. so that dynamic alone is too scary for most people.
0: That was Professor Shibli Telhami, the Anwar Sadat Professor for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, with your takeaway. And also a reminder that if you're having difficulty following the transformative events in the Middle East, you're hardly alone. We'll be following those events on the next takeaway, along with The New York Times, the BBC, PRI, and our other partners. And join us right here for the next edition of Wave of Change, explaining and experiencing the push for democracy in Egypt and the Arab world. With Celeste Headley, I'm John Huckenberry. Thanks for joining us. And remember, we're always on at thetakeaway.org.